Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we listen to the 1962 score for the film Bachelor Flat. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you so much for joining me on Episode 6 of The Baton. I hope you learned a lot from the last episode, featuring a discussion of the film The Secret Ways. As I mentioned, it is a bad film, with a score by John Williams that rises above the muck. He would have to do that for his next film, a frothy comedy of errors that delves more than once into slapstick humor. Luckily, John Williams' music doesn't go down with it. Before I begin discussing Bachelor Flat, I want to jump back to something I said during the Because They're Young episode. It involved my comparison of the music in one of the final scenes to the music in the film version of West Side Story. I mentioned that John Williams' music made me think of music in the West Side Story prologue, and gave this as a possible reason for the similarities. I'm sure John Williams had seen West Side Story on stage, and certainly some of the music rattled through his brain. The flavor of the prologue music in West Side Story had an impact on the work that John Williams did for the scene with Patcher. I got a message on Twitter from John Wolfe, who was quick to point out that it was probably more than coincidental that the music from both movies sounded familiar. He said John Williams played piano during some of the scoring sessions for the film version of West Side Story, a claim that I have verified through a few other sources. The score of West Side Story was recorded just before Williams had to work on Because They're Young, and this definitely explains why there's a bit of borrowing in the style for a scene in Because They're Young. And again, as I said in that episode, I am not accusing John Williams of stealing from Leonard Bernstein, but I am sure Williams drew inspiration from West Side Story's music for this one scene. So, coming back to 1962, the year Bachelor Flat was released, and John Williams was playing piano on yet another movie that would turn out to be much more popular than the one on which he was working. Elmer Bernstein was writing the music for the film To Kill a Mockingbird, and he asked his colleague John Williams to play piano on what would become a popular theme. Of course, John Williams didn't get any kind of film credit for his participation in To Kill a Mockingbird, and it would be one of the last times he would play music on another film score. In fact, he would do it just one more time for his good friend Henry Mancini in a couple of years. Bachelor Flat made me laugh a couple of times, but I really wish director Frank Tashlin and his co-screenwriter Bud Grossman knew what kind of comedy it should be. There's a bit of slapstick, 
a bit of romance, a bit of high comedy, and a lot of farce. And what I found most unbelievable is the running storyline that this English professor, played by the interesting but absolutely non-charming Terry Thomas, was irresistible to women. The implication is that he can't keep women off him simply because he's English. But that can't be all of it. If they wanted to have audiences buy into this ruse, the casting director should have gotten a genuinely handsome English actor who does well with comedy. Someone like David Niven or Michael Caine or John Cleese would have worked much better than someone who was famous only for physical comedy. Terry Thomas is okay, but he wouldn't have been on any list for Sexiest Man Alive. So, let's talk about the plot of the movie, and be warned, spoilers are coming. Terry Thomas plays Bruce Patterson, who is engaged to the very beautiful Helen Bushmill at the beginning of the movie, to the dismay of his female students. While Helen is away, Bruce stays at Helen's beachside house, where a law student is living in a trailer. Before we move on, I should say that Helen Bushmill is played by Academy Award winner Celeste Holm, who we say is quote-unquote slumming it for this movie. The law student, Michael, is played by Richard Bamer, whose last role was as Tony in West Side Story. So, 20th Century Fox loaded its cast with some good stars. Someone whose star was on the rise was Tuesday Weld, who was a contract actor for Fox and was previously in Because They're Young two years earlier, also scored by John Williams. Weld plays Helen's daughter Libby, who comes to the beach house looking for her mother but runs into Bruce and Michael. Hijinks ensue since she decides to not tell anyone she is Helen's daughter. Of course, the movie would have been over in three minutes if she had just told everyone the truth, but of course we have to sit through about 90 minutes of her trying to convince everyone she's a delinquent who has run away from reform school. You can tell that everyone is doing their best to have fun with this movie, and John Williams certainly is having fun here. He does so well with only about 20 minutes of music, it's no wonder he spent most of the 1960s writing music for comedies. The film begins with a prologue that goes back to the Revolutionary War when American women would have secret affairs with British soldiers. This is really the only moment of pure slapstick in the film that gets music from John Williams. It's quite corny, as you will hear. So, it turns out the husband of the American woman, played by Richard Boehmer, is hiding in the bushes. He shoots the British officer, played by Terry Thomas, who falls to the ground, hitting a board that sends a big rock flying into the air and hitting the husband in the head. You will pretty much know when each moment happens just by listening to the music. Not quite, my dear. Lovely shot, old man. Hold my cup, darling, will you? After that, we move to the present day when Professor Patterson is driving to the university during the opening credits. During this nice, jaunty theme music, we see women on the street melting over the sight of this man driving by. This music will serve as the theme for Professor Patterson, revisited every once in a while as a comedy-style march. Thank you. 
here, John Williams puts the flutes and strings in a flurry as a girl sprays her boyfriend at a water fountain. So, as I mentioned earlier, 17-year-old Libby arrives at the beach house looking for her mother. No one knows she is coming. In fact, she has run away from her boarding school. Not knowing that Bruce is in the house, and actually in the shower during her entrance, she looks around. And here's where John Williams introduces us to Libby's theme. As she continues to wander around the house, Libby sees a photo of her mother on the nightstand with a love note written Bruce. Before she can escape the house, Bruce comes out of the bathroom and Michael comes in from his trailer. At first, Libby hides in the liquor cabinet, don't ask, then hides in a crate holding a rare dinosaur bone. Michael? I want you to note here that when Libby sneezes, Williams puts in some nice flute flourishes. There's a major sequence that follows involving another woman who invades Bruce's bachelor flat by accident. Bruce spends nearly 10 minutes trying to hide both women from each other and from Michael. I was surprised John Williams didn't write music for this scene. Most composers would have jumped at the chance to write music for something so chaotic and comedic. But even though I was surprised there was no music for this long sequence, I was pleased that I didn't hear any. Now once the dust settles, Bruce returns from a dinner party to find Libby in his bed. A sweet rendition of her theme plays as she sleeps peacefully. While Bruce sleeps out on the patio, Libby cooks him breakfast the next morning. 
She does some sort of a dance around the kitchen while a nice jazz piece by John Williams plays on a radio. This had to be fun for John Williams to write. This was only his fifth film, and he hadn't had too many chances to write source music. As you could tell, it makes use of his jazz background a great effect. This one isn't as memorable as Libby's theme, but I probably would have been dancing around the kitchen if I had heard it too. So Bruce spends most of the first half of the film trying to keep Michael from knowing about Libby, but Michael soon finds out about her. The law student in him tries to find out if she really did go to a reform school for girls, and Libby manages to spill out a good lie. But not for long. Turns out Libby's statement about stealing cars was taken from a movie, one that Michael sees on television. He sneaks into the beach house to confront Libby. There's some fine sneaking around music on strings and flutes. Once Michael sees Libby in the attic, we get her theme played beautifully on Celeste as she retrieves one of her dolls from a trunk. The music continues when Libby hears Michael in the house. Her theme picks up in tempo as she runs through the house and out onto the beach looking for him. Mm -hmm. 
I really like the rendition here of Libby's theme. Though it is lovely when played softly and slowly, it has its charms as well when played with a little more vigor. And we'll get a real speedy version of it later on. Okay, now we're at my absolute favorite part of the score, even though the scene itself could have been left on the cutting room floor. I should preface it by saying that there's a dachshund in the movie named Jessica who is obsessed with Bruce's rare dinosaur bone, as all dogs are. Jessica takes the opportunity to drag the bone out of the house and bury it on a beach. John Williams composes a wonderful mambo piece for Jessica's mini-adventure. watched this scene three times in a row, never getting tired of it. I had a constant smile on my face as I was watching. This is the type of composition that has made John Williams so revered. He could take a scene as trivial as a dog dragging a bone on the beach and add music to give it energy and life. The music took me by surprise when I first heard it, and it turned this scene into one that I really didn't want to end. The scene does end, but we're not done with the mambo yet. Bruce realizes the bone is missing, then deduces that Jessica has buried it. I love this music so much I can't get enough of it. Anyway, the music takes a break while Bruce greets a woman on the beach, and then we're back to the action. (laughs) 
While he and Michael search for it on the beach, a rival of Bruce's sees him digging. Oh, he's digging like a dog. Probably an English bull. Get it, kid. I knew it. I knew it. Ah. Yeah. Look at the size of that bull. Just wonderful music. I absolutely love it. Now, there's about five more minutes of music sprinkled throughout the remaining 20 minutes of film. I won't detail it here because it isn't extremely memorable. I will highlight the very brief end credits because it marks the first time John Williams reprises the major themes in a film's end credit sequence. Note the themes for Libby and Bruce before we say goodbye to the film. The theme for Libby got a major boost that same year when Williams composed and recorded an extended version, oddly called Tuesday's Theme. I had not seen Bachelor Flat until I watched it for the purposes of doing this podcast, but I had heard Tuesday's Theme many years ago. I had always assumed there was a character named Tuesday in the film, but in fact, Tuesday's Theme is named after Tuesday Weld, the actress who plays Libby. This track was released as a single upon the debut of Bachelor Flat in theaters. I don't think it did gangbusters in terms of sales, but it has survived the past 57 years as a treasured composition among John Williams fans.
This was the first time John Williams expanded on a theme he wrote for a film. This is a pretty big expansion given that Libby's theme is only about three measures long, but it gave him the idea to expand on some themes in the future. Princess Leia's theme, the Imperial March, and the Raiders March were just a few themes that got big expansions and helped promote concert performances in later years. Unfortunately, Bachelor Flat was a big flop for 20th Century Fox. The film made very little money despite having an Oscar winner and the star of an Oscar-winning Best Picture in the cast. But this film marked the first of a long partnership between John Williams and 20th Century Fox. That's the studio behind the Star Wars films, which would help launch John Williams into the stratosphere 15 years later. So, 1962 would end the same way it began for John Williams. You'll remember the Grammy nomination that John Williams received for his work on the TV show Checkmate, losing to Henry Mancini's score for Breakfast at Tiffany's. In the fall of 1962, Williams received his first Emmy nomination for writing the theme music to the anthology series Alcoa Premiere, which was Fred Astaire's attempt at creating something similar to The Twilight Zone. Here's a bit of that Emmy-nominated theme music. Williams didn't go home with an Emmy in 1962. The winner of the category Outstanding Achievement in Original Music Composed for Television was Richard Rodgers for Winston Churchill, The Valiant Years. Yes, this Richard Rodgers is of the famed Rodgers and Hammerstein, the team responsible for the songs from such popular hits as The Sound of Music, The King and I, South Pacific, and many more. So that does it for this discussion of the score to Bachelor Flat. In the next episode, John Williams takes on an adaptation of a best-selling book and was to experience many limitations to his work on that score. I can't wait to talk about that. Until then, the baton is down. <laughs>